This podcast is sponsored by Meridian. For custom integrators, it's all about the performance. We get that at Meridian. That's why we craft high-res audio solutions, purpose-built for integrators, that put the listener right at the heart of the performance. High-res audio, engineered for you, built by Meridian. It's the future of sound. Hello and welcome to The Integrated Home, a podcast produced by the Integrated Home community for the Integrated Home community. My name is Jeff Hayward and every month we'll be examining the business issues facing the industry. Today we're taking a look at business outside of the London bubble. What are the trends in the housing market that are really saying something about our industry in the regions? Are we talking glory box or is it sour times? Elsewhere, smart home technologies are under scrutiny again in the media for providing zero security to would-be hackers. Are we on the verge of a massive attack from grudge-bearing exes and malicious criminals? And what impact do security concerns have on the professional smart home sector? Then, we're going to talk media rooms. How easy or tricky is it to design and install the technology into these spaces? Are integrators delivering what's best for clients in these multi-purpose living areas? And do architects, designers and clients know or care enough about what can be achieved? Welcome to The Integrated Home. So, where are we today? Well, the eager-leared amongst you may have guessed that we're broadcasting from the home of the legendary Portishead. It's also the place where Tricky, Massive Attack and two-thirds of Bananarama were born. We're not north by northwest. We're west. We're very west indeed. We're in Bristol. To be more precise, we're sitting in the living room of Owen Maddock, principal of Connected Works and co-founder of the Home Tech Gallery hashtag. Joining us here is Matt Zacherson-Smith, managing director of Total Solutions. Gentlemen, welcome to the Integrated Home. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Owen, for those listening who don't know you, can you just give listeners a quick insight into your background and business? Um, I've been in the audio video business for about the last 20 years. I've been a retailer. Um, more recently, I guess the last 10, 12 years, I've been a custom installer. Um, and four years ago, it was time to start my own business and thing. And we, we started Connected Works and moved to Bristol. I'm quite active in Cedia. I do a bit of volunteer work there. I get out and do a lot of COI work. And I live here with Karen and my little boy, Louis. Uh, Matt, tell us about you. What's your story? Uh, So uh, after I took my A-levels, I basically travelled up to London, studied audio engineering. After a while, I got a bit bored of being a poor live engineer and not being able to afford to live or eat in London. So I moved back home, back to Bristol, and um, I worked for Roland for a while as a product specialist. So basically demoing and offering technical support for all their recording hardware, their V-drums, guitars, synths, all that sort of stuff. Didn't quite get on with that. So um, whilst looking for another job, I was working with my old man to basically keep myself sane. And he had an electrical firm. And then a few years after doing that, I sort of had a eureka moment and started my company, furthered my education and learned about the things I didn't know so much, like cinema and networking. And here we are now. Excellent. Well, thanks, guys. So what's happening in the outside world that could impact upon an integrator's life? Well... Householders are increasingly likely to live on Millionaire Row, according to a BBC News report. A total of 16,119 property sales for £1 million or more were completed last year. That's up 5.4% from the previous high in 2016. 
Over the past decade, while most of these properties were sold in London, sales have doubled in the east of England, whereas university cities such as Cambridge and Bristol have seen £1 million plus sales surge. In Bristol, there were 325 homes over £1 million sold since 2007, with the most expensive sold for £3,090,000. Owen, you've worked in both London and Bristol. Are you seeing a surge in demand for your services from this growing band of property millionaires? Um, I think I think for a start, a lot of it's just the same people. They left London and kind of moved to Bristol, either because they get an awful lot more house for their money or because they're kind of still working in London, but the kids are getting older and they want to be nearer the countryside, enjoy a nicer house. Mm-hmm. You know, the commute, if you're doing three days a week, say, it's not horrific. London's kind of an hour, an hour and a half from here. So... I think if you're working from home quite a lot of the time, that has implications in terms of the, the networking, the Wi-Fi services that you might need. And we, we do a lot of that for people home working. That's a real growth area, I think. Um, and actually just because in the last 10 years, not just in terms of property prices, but we're all living our lives and our business lives online. What about you, Matt? Same for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more really that you get more bang for your buck in Bristol, but that doesn't necessarily mean you've got more money to spend but um, our clients really are split between people that live near that sort of M4 corridor London commuter base they work in London a few times a week and then from home but you know as Bristol's such an up-and-coming city there's more and more millionaires being made within the city so mm. I find that we're starting to work for people that are Bristol-based companies that have grown over the the years and i guess they gravitate towards big employers because you've got airbus around here that employ people haven't you and you've got yeah, rolls royce as well rolls royce yeah. nice schools as well you've also got um this hasn't ref- led to any business yet but you've got quite a big and burgeoning tech scene you know the sort of tech spark hub around here and there's quite a few really successful companies i mean bright pearl who do the e-commerce stuff underpinning an awful lot of really big businesses are from bristol um they haven't quite become customers yet because they're kind of in their early 30s and they know a lot yeah. about IT then they're not quite ready to cash out and build houses but when they are so a lot of digital media and digital marketing companies seem to have moved to Bristol from, from London it almost seems like it's the sort of the creative capital outside of London that certainly dictates the clients that we have and especially how we approach our jobs with them because there's similar briefs but ultimately we'll get different budget ends and, and structures towards them Excellent I guess what we're seeing is uh Uh, what your business is reflecting the changing lifestyles of of customers you know you don't have to work in the office you can work a lot more from home no exactly and like say with the digital marketing and media half these people will get out their office for them as well and it's just their office is just an extension of their their family home they just happen to have a cinema in there as well which we've done for them so and and actually if if you're if you're a small business owner there's nothing wrong with having a really good presentation suite in your home working space that just happens to play movies really well so in terms of the type of business you're doing is it mostly houses in the city or are you working a lot on houses in the countryside what's the sort of split for me i would probably say it's sort of 75 percent city and the the main suburbs are like clifton and henley's these areas and then i'm starting to work more and more in in suburbs such as clevedon like that where it's sort of almost old money is starting to come up now and it's it's getting more and more popular and people moving out there i think it's there's a lot of really nice villages not in the country but you're kind of a mile from town so i'd say half are just in bristol and the other half are kind of in the surroundings 
And how aware would customers be of the sort of services that you provide? I think in London, people are probably quite au fait with the concept of a smart home installer. Well, for my company, we work with quite a few sort of design and build companies, architect companies, sort of like that. And for me, it's almost like an added value um, package that they're not often made aware of. So as soon as then people know that these things are available and actually they're not bank busting systems anymore and you don't have to go full on and do the whole house then that's when they sort of engage you and then start learning more. What about you, Owen? What do you think? More, more often than not, I find I'm introducing people to what can be done. You know, for example, um, my classic job might be a kind of a four-story villa in Clifton and there's a ISP router on one of the floors, usually the basement or the, uh, the ground floor, and they've no conception that you can extend that and put wireless access points or wireless hotspots around the place and have seamless coverage everywhere so I, we're still introducing people to that idea or an idea like lighting control or the other thing I think we definitely find is oh my friend had that five years ago it wasn't good I'm not keen mm-hmm. because you see that a lot what about other benefits of working outside of London you can get everywhere in 10 minutes Bristol's brilliant <laughs> don't have to deal with London traffic you can mostly park. <laughs> the client base have got drives and things, which is which is new. And it's thriving, all chilled out, isn't it? <laughs> little things like great organic food and craft beer and coffee, and just you get to live here. There's well, a pub on every awesome. corner. <laughs> You're selling the dream. <laughs> Perfect. On to other news stories. The Internet of Things has opened up a new frontier of domestic abuse, according to a recent report in the New York Times, picked up by British media last week. The papers report that as most digital devices are installed by men, it's former partners, not hackers, who pose the greatest threat to women's welfare. This news follows on from a BBC Panorama episode in which reporter Fiona Phillips revealed how products designed to make life easier around the home can be hacked. Matt, how important is network security for your business? Obviously, uh, network security is, is is paramount importance as as custom installers, particularly on security systems like CCTV and uh, things like that. But uh, regarding that story, I mean, you can't really fend against it too much because if you've got a password, no matter how secure your system is, it's irrelevant because you can get back into it or not. If you kick the bloke out and it ended badly, change the lock. Yeah, that's change really what we're saying. <laughs> Don't blame the technology, right? Exactly. And what about um, one of the other things that occurred to me as I was reading this? Two stories within the last few months. It seems to me there's a little bit of paranoia about IoT devices and smart home. You know, there seems to be this media sort of campaign going on. To a point, I think it's just the news cycle. I mean, with, with IoT stuff generally, it's like, if we go back a couple of years, oh, it's going to be amazing. We're going to have the internet and everything. You're going to have the internet in your socks. It's just going to change your life and it's going to be brilliant. And then, of course, that doesn't happen. And then, of course, we've got kind of things like the Facebook, Cambridge Analytica stuff controversy. So now the news cycle is going, oh, no, IoT, it's going to be terrible. And it's going to be Big Brother. And of course it isn't. It's just your heating system. It's not that big a deal. You know, if you want to turn the heating off from the airport and you can. So I think to some extent, it's just you've got to kind of ride out the cycle. Um, but what I will think absolutely does happen is you meet a nice client and you're talking about doing some stuff and you're going to say we're doing some lighting and we're going to do some heating control. And they're going, oh, no, but I might get hacked. And that's your chance to shine. You know, we've got the certifications around network security. Um, Package do one as well. That's um, very well regarded. So it's a point to say. I have got these certificates here which say I'm trained for network security and I'm going to follow best practice and could you please hire me? Mm. And that just helps you. That just helps you have a chance. So it's an opportunity, Matt, not a problem. 
Um, I mean, certainly it is an opportunity. If we're being engaged from the start of a job and we have the chance to design the system properly and properly implement it, then absolutely it's it's an opportunity. The other thing I think, though, is um, a lot of these IoT solves are highly appropriate for some buildings and some potential clients and some family situations. But, for example, if we take, again, the four-storey villa in Clifton or the lovely pile in Abbots Lee or something like that, we can't do that with smart bulbs. It's too big a building. Perhaps the quality expectations aren't there. We need something nicer to control that lighting with in terms of the switches on the wall. So I think to an extent, we've always seen kind of people buy those silly plug things that go under the mains to try and cure the Wi-Fi. And you think, oh, no, I wanted to do that properly. I wanted to run a cable and give you a really good system that's going to stay up for ages. Similarly, I think people in massive houses think they can buy a kind of few hundred quids worth of IoT stuff and that'll be brilliant. And it's not. So we're getting back to that sort of budget kind of question that we talked about working in Bristol, people not being aware enough of what the technology yeah. is all about. That's it, it's education. I don't think people realise that a lot of what we can do is available. If you go in the Apple store and you can buy connected lamps or whatever it is you want, but people don't know what you can do further with proper lighting control and proper wired systems. It's, I suppose it's, it's not that we can do it so much better. It's just that the straightforward stuff that you can go and buy isn't appropriate to massive houses that we often find ourselves working on so matt do clients actually call you in on the basis of a a security requirement or not um i wouldn't say they do it's more it's again a a happy added value product or package that you can offer them above and beyond just making their internet work yeah I, i think fundamentally um for example you you sorted out my friend's wi-fi and they've got coverage everywhere and can you do the same for me might be a more normal thing security is there as a chat but it's not a reason you get the call and in terms of then getting business in this part of the country is it something where you're called on more for an av solution first or people don't even know you do security or do they call on you for lighting what's the sort of main driver do you know for me it's definitely kind of probably wi-fi first and then networking i made a conscious decision actually when i started connected works and it was I almost needed to kind of back off it where I kind of went more into we do great Wi-Fi, we do smart home, we do that sort of thing. Because I looked at what my skills were relative to those around me and I thought, well, these are areas in which I'm trained and good. Mm. And more recently, I've actually put the foot down more on kind of media systems and gone back to that because now these are also areas in which we're trained and good kind Mm. of thing. What about you, Matt? Um, To be honest, it's with if I'm working for... um a design and build company or something you're going over the m&e plans and that i more make the clients aware that maybe you need to look at your network infrastructure as it's subpar to what you've got and it's from their conversations really that then they've discovered what you can do so it might just be the security within the network but then they find about the lighting control av so for me i would say really a lot of my business does stem from a, a network foundation and again it's just that education to the client i thought it was all wireless these days mm, if only I think but that's, that's yeah. That, that's a lot of the question. That the, a lot of the argument, not the argument, but a lot of the discussion I have with the clients is like, oh yeah, well, we'll just stick a power line or we'll just stick a Wi-Fi repeater down there, and it's that good old phrase: you put shit in, you get shit out. Like you know, it's <laughs> it's, it's trying to give them the education of a, a wired system. It's still wireless because you're transmitting that wireless network, but it's hardwired. As soon as they sort of get it in their heads, and then you realise that, then they realise how the rest of the house can work with it. And it's not clients' fault. They're bombarded with all this kind of breathless hype around, ah, this wireless doohickey will save your life and this wireless doohickey. And of course, then what happens is you've got a hundred of the things in the same room 
all fighting with each other for a very limited amount of wireless spectrum and then things aren't reliable and we should have run the wires but it's not it's not clients fault they're bombarded with marketing stuff from mainstream technology world every day and we're only quite little we can't make that much noise yeah i think i tried to impress on on the clients as well you can do things wirelessly but it's always better to have that word contingency and i say to them, the most expensive cable is that cable you didn't put in so it doesn't cost a ton to yeah. pre-wire for I hate the word future-proofing, but it doesn't cost you a ton to facilitate for this, but it's going to cost you a lot if you don't, and you later need it. I think every integrator in the country has that. Absolutely. That's half of our job, you know, we're problem solvers, or we're trying to solve unforeseen problems five years down the road. So the most important thing, again, for every integrator, is get that foot in the door, and then you can expand the conversation to talk about the other areas that you can do. Absolutely. And sell more to them. Absolutely. The Integrated Home Podcast. So, it's hot seat time. I'm handing over the reins to Matt, who is going to help us find out more about Owen. Owen, you've got 30 seconds to answer as many questions as you can, starting now. Who is your inspiration in the industry? Peter Aylett. Bath or Bristol? Bristol. Yes, good man. What was the last movie you saw in the cinema? God, um... Star Wars, not the first one. <laughs> Wired or wireless? Wired. Harry Kane or Harry Styles? Ooh. No. <laughs> What's your favourite project? Harry, our client in Gordano. IoT or LED? LED. Vinyl or CD? Cassette. <laughs> Memorial Stadium or Ashton Gate? Ashton Gate. Love Island or Love Actually? Love Actually. <laughs> <laughs> So, in the first part of the show, we talked a little about what business is like in and around Bristol, and it's clear to me that you're both involved in a fair few media room projects. Owen, how would you actually define a media room? To a point, I suppose everyone's lounge is a media room. It's where you kind of go to watch the telly, watch a film. So one of the main jobs is going to be high-quality audio and video. It's that simple. And how, how many times are you working on a, a media room as just one space in a, in a house or doing it as part of an integrated home installation? Oh, wow. It, I suppose it just depends. I mean, Bristol's interesting in that there's very little in the way of new build. So it might be we're just doing one extension, which has got a sort of media room element to it or our award-winning project that we did together. That was just the extension was the media room. Mm. But there's a little bit of whole home went with that as well. It's sort of a sliding scale. What's the balance in your business, Matt? Um, much the same as own. I mean, it's Bristol. Very rarely will we do a complete integrated home. Most of ours are sort of a hybrid integrated home with a media room. If it's just a media room project, then a lot of the time we've come on board alongside Owen as we tend to offer more whole home solutions. It's not specifically just a media room we tend to do as, as our own company. So pretty much compromised spaces, you know, people could be living in there, watching TV, playing games in there, having a meal, you know, you've got to think about lots of different things. I wouldn't say say compromised, I would say it's multi-use. I think that's a really good point, is that it doesn't have to be a compromise, you can hit loads and loads or or as many of the performance numbers as, as is possible. I think what you see out there are compromises, I think you see tellies and they're kind of starting yay high off off the wall or you're seeing the kind of the telly that's too high and the soundbar that's too high because someone thought it'd be clever to put a fireplace in underneath there <laughs> yeah. um, i've got a job a bit like that except that the fireplace is off to one side and the screen and the 
sound thing are in the right space. Ergonomically, that's much better for the users. And I think as, as tech guys, we don't think about this stuff enough. We're not thinking about ergonomics and usability and just simple things like comfort. Mm. It's not comfortable to watch that screen if it's way too high. You're just going to hurt your neck. Um, and actually, this is stuff that I find goes over quite well with our friends in construction. You know, we look at the metric handbook, which you're given on sort of day one of architecture school. And that's thinking about what's comfortable. You know, how should the seating be? What should the walkways be? Well, then if we present it to them in those terms, I think it's much easier to suddenly, and the screen's kind of going all the way back down the wall again to mm. a sensible position. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing always to put a screen above a fireplace, but providing you're within the parameters, so like as long as you're not going above a 10 degree sweep to hurt your neck and that it depends on the size of the room and this that and the other yes exactly it's actually good order because you're sitting up a lot yes i mean sometimes it's unavoidable i have quite a few jobs where just the type of house and how the layout is you have to have your tv above your fireplace if you want so long as you can work it within the parameters so that you're not overextending your neck or Mm. going above the sort of 10 degree tilt then absolutely that's fine but it just requires a bit more thinking and a bit more design so would you say that that's really the key just to for integrators to think a little bit more about yeah, what they're doing? Absolutely. Any, anything. You can really get around almost anything, providing you apply some logic. And to an extent, I think you step outside your comfort zone. I mean, if you put five integrators in a room, they're going to just talk about gear all the time. And, oh, I solved that problem with this. And we get into this massive nerd off. That's great and everything. But in front of clients, in front of their, their architects, let's step back from that and let's talk about usability let's talk about the ergonomics of it and i think you'll get a much better response mm. it seems to work for us where we're sort of saying well here's why we're thinking mm. about it this way and here's kind of how it is and then the drawings you're presented with i think loads of people say oh architects mm. you know oh, they wanted this there and they wanted this there it's like yeah but who briefed them because if it was you it's mm. your fault yeah certainly if you present things into a aesthetic point of view rather than a technical point of view that even though there is a technical foundation to why you're suggesting it providing it has that sort of aesthetic reasoning. The, the client seems to be much more on board with that than you should do this because of this degree of listening angle or viewing angle. I think yeah, the other thing is, again, clients can't know. It's not their fault. They don't know that a nest won't do a six-bed mansion. They don't know that the reason we're saying this is because we want you to have a nice experience. Mm-hmm. If you just tell them the rules, that's a silly way of yeah. doing it. You say, well, the ergonomics of it are this, and this is going to be really enjoyable that will go over better. But you're dealing with kind of normal everyday people and you're also dealing with kind of trained architect construction people. So be polite and learn the language. Yeah. So would you say the experience is also a part of that thinking process for integrators, understanding what their customers actually want? I think that's massively the point because a lot of times you get the people install things for the sake of installing it, whereas we're back to our earlier points in Bristol, we don't necessarily have the budget. You've got to be a lot more streamlined and concise about what you're installing and only do it if it will make their life better or they'll see benefit from it would you say also that perhaps other integrators just focus too much around the av aspect rather than other services that you can put into a media room uh i mean i think one of the most overlooked things is lighting the cinema lighting's pretty simple pretty straightforward it's completely bonkers room yeah so you can just do bonkers lighting you know you can have it can be a christmas tree if you want and have silly colored lights everywhere but in a, in a media room that's highly appropriate yeah. in a media room that's your lounge that might be certainly on my manner considered a little bit yeah. tacky i mean sally's story in her book she says you know colored lights are great in a home theater and they're great in a garden and, and they're great room. in a kids room <laughs> but the media room will know that's that's your lounge so that probably wants to be done with a certain degree of taste and restraint i think you still want to have the silliness in the you know the craziness of it but 
it still has to be practical at the same time. So that's when you've got to start adding like task lighting into it and some more background lighting and maybe even use sort of reflective lighting and indirect lighting. It's a much harder room to control for lighting wise and to try and really get those two aspects of cinema and living together can actually be really tricky. So how do you go about doing that on your project, Zoe? Um I'm not seasoned enough in the dark arts of lighting design. That's precisely why I brought Matty into the one we did together was the main lighting designer because I knew it needed to be quite special. Um, I knew our client was concerned with the aesthetics of stuff. And again, finding a good lighting designer is really, really hard. I've got one now. He just happens to be you know, a CD guy and a trained Sparky and quite talented, I suppose. Yeah, this looked to me like a hard project from the lighting design point of view. I was really happy with the cabinetry, kind of the way the cinema aspect worked out, but... I don't think anyone's world-class at everything. No, true. I mean, presumably you use Owen as well to help you support you on some... Yeah, I mean, areas. absolutely. Is it, you know, I do jobs that we'll do on our own if it's just a bit of audio in the ceiling and that. But when it comes to like real high-performance rooms, you can do it on your own. But what's the point? It's, it feels much better to collaborate with someone, A, that you know, B, that you trust, and put our heads together and we, we can work it out. And the overall result ultimately is much better for the client. So you talked about the different types of lighting. Presumably you've got to take account of different times of day, different daylight levels coming into the room as well, which means much more overall control needs to be better. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why we try and, and, and in any media room, at least try and implement some kind of lighting control system so that rather than having a bank of dimmers or switches to have uh, when you're in cinema mode or if you're in just TV mode or reading mode, at least you can just, with the press of a button have those predetermined scenes set out for you how open are clients to that sort of conversation because presumably they get you in to say well can you put a tv in here because we use it as a multifunctional living space to be honest for my company the lighting control is almost there before the tv and the, the audio side of it i think has become more known thanks to like the, the smart lamps and that lighting control is more widely known about than yeah. more affordable I think maybe it has the preconception that it's more affordable. I think people, as soon as you say media room, home cinema, people think suddenly you're going to have to dump a hundred grand on a room when really you don't, you don't have to do that. And it's, you know, if you look at the awards as well with all the different categories, sub 20 grand, I know it's still a ton of money, Mm. but you can have something outperforms your local cinema tenfold for less than 20 grand. So would you say media rooms and lighting control within the media rooms is a bit of a missed opportunity for other integrators? I think lighting control in general for a lot of integrators is a missed opportunity. Do you agree, Owen? Yeah, but also in lighting design. I think almost Mm. more than lighting control. I'd say what I see out there, most people are doing that. The media room, the kitchen, the garden, you've got to have it. Mm. Bedrooms, it's merely very nice. But but the lighting design aspect is a real chance to shine, I think. But is lighting design a CDM member's job or is it the job of a lighting design company or an electrician? Yes. What was the... <laughs> which one? It just depends on your remit, really. I mean, I've, I've trained myself on it, so I know a load about it. So you can employ another lighting designer, you can trust... At the end of the day, lighting design is just someone's designed yeah. system. You know, it doesn't necessarily... It's not going to be like a full commercial car showroom with all your perfect calvin and cri ratings and all this but there's still obviously some science to it but anyone could basically call themselves a lighting designer if you design a lighting system yeah and around on our local scene I've, i know a couple of other good ones i know a couple where i would say i wouldn't engage them on a project but if they've got a successful business then then great it's a really weird area 
reminds me a bit of how interior design used to be well I think now it's a bit more trained qualified professional whereas if we go back it used to be sort of oh, darling and cushions and all this stuff lighting design's a funny one because yes there's definitely trained experts out there I would say if you're an integration if you know and are working with a good lighting designer Christ hang on to them yeah because presumably people like Sally Story don't venture down too far to I, Bristol probably today. probably she would but I just don't presume we can get the rate <laughs> yeah again going back to budget we're not we're not London well, we're and certainly not Kensington, are we? No. There's plenty of nice, wealthy people here that want some proper yeah. stuff. But yeah, everything's every pound is... Well, I've is just considered. come off a job with a colleague, and it's the first time ever outside London I've seen John Cullen lighting. Never in my life. And, and in terms of how lighting works with the overall design of the room, how does it help you design the AV experience and make that better? Um, tough one, really. Well, look at the back wall. Yeah, so we actually implemented... Accent lighting and task lighting from a single fitting within our media room we did in East Norgondano because we've got our rear speakers are actually on the wall and mm. it's on a lovely sort of poured concrete finish. Basically, we just made the light shine down in the middle okay. of each of the speakers. So it's right above the sofa. So it's task lighting for reading and then also dimmed down is your accent lighting over the back of your speakers as well. Absolutely. And also you can read by them. So it's doing yeah, exactly. lots and lots. Of, and so so, and it's also a multifaceted light. Yeah, really, really nice. So that helps make them feel, wow, we're, we're enjoying a special yeah. kind of movie experience as yeah. well as if they're just using it for work or whatever. They yeah. can do that too. And then what's, what's quite nice about the media room as well is it's unlike a cinema, it's got a white ceiling. Mm-hmm. So we were able to use like hidden concealed LED strips, which then use the white ceiling to bounce off, which give you a nice ambient light, but very soft. So you don't actually look at any lights, any glare, which gives you that really nice... It's, done, it's almost otherworldly as the client explained it. It's so hard to explain without sitting in there. Well, this is a project that's up for an award, right? So... Yes. yes. Yeah. So what I can ask uh, listeners to do is take a look at the pictures and, and see what you think because it's it's online on there. Is that a CD award contender? Yeah, it's, it's in for best media room in the um, EMEA. We'll take a look and see what we think. And just generally, audio visual is is it really all about five point one still seven point one? I mean, what what are you doing in terms of usually Atmos? Why would you not? For example. People don't want to see speakers particularly. People do want to have an experience that's as immersive as possible. Of course mm-hmm. they do. Now that we can have overhead sound, you know, mm-hmm. now that that helicopter or spaceship is flying right over your head, well, why wouldn't you want that? In our job, we went for 5.1.2 as a balance. So we can only see a couple of rear speakers, very discreet pair of overheads. That seems to me about right. Mm-hmm. If it was a bigger space, it'd be a different answer. I mean, the answer is intimately bound up with how big is this room? How many people yeah. is it for? Yeah. Same as when you're designing cinemas. Yeah. How big is it? And yeah. how many people is it for? And projectors and screens? Or, or are you okay working with TVs? What's the, what's the sort of bias typically of what you do? Me and Owen talked about this earlier. You know, a media room doesn't have to have two screens or anything. But it's a really good answer. And if you want that sort of cinematic media room, as you coined earlier, then a big old screen coming down over your TV it's always got that wow factor as well. Because okay. it's a different answer. If I want to sit down and watch Die Hard, which I often do, then you know we, we, we absolutely need to start hitting the cinema viewing angles, just like we're taught on the course. So we need to have that much of our senses taken up. But if I want to sit down and watch the news, now at no point do I want the guy's nostril that big. So two screens is a really sensible answer if you like normal telly and films and sport. It depends yeah. what you're doing. If you're just kind of watching the match on a Saturday afternoon, telly, yeah. If all your friends are coming around, you know, 10 or 12 of your favourite people, and you're going to watch the World Cup, that's a whole different thing. That's an occasion. Big. So two screens is a very good answer. And I guess 
in this area, people aren't really looking at basement conversions like they would be in, say, Kensington, where they could put the cinema room down in the basement. Actually, I've done loads of basement cinema media things, but probably more a bit of both, but there's loads of basements. Clifton is old and Victorian. Yeah. Um, I can think of there's a guy who produces TV programmes. There's just a, a lot of people, just a nice big family. And that basement room, because, of course, historically it was servants' quarters, so you don't have a lovely high ceiling. You're not going to get light and airy. You might as well just put a massive telly in there or a projection system in there and have a room to sit in and watch things. What you don't get is you absolutely don't get people digging out extra levels and making the ground unstable and getting into trouble with Robbie Williams next door. That doesn't happen. Right. But... In Clifton, the basement's already there. And what about the the education that you need to do with architects and designers about what you can achieve in media rooms? Is that a big deal for you? It was a really big deal for me. I mean, when I came off the COI course um, for the second time around in, in 2014, firstly, I kind of told them a load of stuff about it, and that led to being on the COI group. So, yeah, well done. Um, <laughs> but also, it turned out there was a, a training being prepared already by CDO4, cinema and media room design and this seems to me excellent because instead of having the pressure of a project why don't we just go there give the education they can rack up the cpd points but they're pre-briefed on doing a media room well doing a cinema well without that kind of oh but there's a client and they want to do it all for 50p and just with the pressure completely off and then i don't know if you're pre-sold but you're again you're pre-sort of told in the nicest possible way here are the ergonomics about what we're trying to do here's the kind of experiences we're trying to create and then we're backed up with award-winning work so all the kind of all the visuals are some really nice examples so they've seen them so do you think that that's going to appeal to architects and designers having a, a cpd that they can go and map i certainly think it does but I, in reality if they use it as much as they should do i find that frustrating from experience i'm sure you have as well some practices i mean i i definitely went to a practice the other day they did almost no residential work that was clearly a um a kind of a point acquiring exercise you will get that from time mm. to time but mostly i think not i think mostly they want to do the trainings that yeah. are relevant but i think yeah absolutely if they if something that they even gives them the idea that they get to a point where they think oh i should probably engage a professional to do this you know i'm here to design a house not necessarily design a media room or a cinema anything that makes people aware of us or think about us in any given time can be nothing but powerful. I would imagine too that architects would look at a cinema and think well that's something I can easily hand over to a professional because it's a dedicated space whereas a media room is much more their territory. That's where they want to create the life flow experience of the space so you guys need to be working with them much earlier on. Yeah exactly I mean that is the exact point where we should be coming in with them because we can keep their design, keep their vision they have for it and work the equipment and the experience for the customer or the client into their room. And that, that's why we should be engaged as soon as possible, really. I think everyone in the channel already knows that and the battle is actually but making does it, it happen. happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, other, the other big one is just is, is sort of space planning, by which I mainly mean space for equipment. This was less of a battle by the time I left London and Surrey, was they kind of understood the requirement for a rack full of gear. Here we're sort of more having that conversation again where, no, this is a home cinema, it can't be just bolted to the wall on a cupboard that's kind of 200 mil deep. I was sort of almost surprised to be going back around that again, but that's, that's, that's where we find ourselves, I suppose. Okay. So from your experience, if you had three words of wisdom from your, your experience of working on media rooms, what would they be for other integrators? I think it's, it's really easy to take the easy way out, pop that telly on the wall, put a soundbar underneath and you're done. And you, functionally, it's true, it's a media room. But the question is, is that an amazing experience for the client? 
the other thing is, does it look as nice as it could? I mean, mm. we absolutely sweated blood on this project, making it tick all the performance boxes, but also making it look nice at the same time, particularly around the cabinet and the way that supports both screens, the way it sits there with the speakers, but everything's very proportionate and very even. The unit's literally cut into six. Within that, we got the right viewing angles, the right listening angles for both jobs, and it just means you have to take longer over it. Mm. What about you, Matt? It's literally like just sweat the small stuff. It's harder to design a high-performance media room than, than a cinema. You've got so many different things to take oh, into consideration. Yep. And it's just, you've really got to take your time over the design. And we, like you said, we agonised over it for weeks. Providing you, you put all your effort into it, I think you can get a really good result. But you really, really have to sweat the small stuff on it. Yeah, I mean, because we're not big companies. My business is not four years old yet, neither is yours. And here we are as one of the best media rooms in EMEA. Well, yeah, you have to really try. And when do you think the CPD will be available for architects and designers to take advantage of? Right, well, it's kind of out of our our hands now in terms of authoring. So we have to get it properly graphic designed by Cedia and then Reba approved. So with all that in mind, should be fourth quarter ready for the autumn. Excellent. Well, I'm sure all integrators will look forward to having that CPD and going out and spreading the word. Thanks to our guests, Owen and Matt, And thanks to our sponsor, Meridian Audio, for making all of this possible. Make sure you listen out next month for The Integrated Home, Episode 3. Remember, we're downloadable absolutely free from iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, and pretty much all your favourite podcast providers. The Integrated Home is a Wildwood and Alfie Media production.